0: Thank you, Jason. Thank you, Miranda. Um, and happy Mother's Day again. Um, we are still in our series called Essentials Know What You Believe. And uh, it has been the past several weeks since we've been walking through the series, we've identified some of the essential doctrines, teachings of the church that are essential for salvation. Like if you don't believe these things, then the Bible would say that you're not a believer, right? And so we've looked at the fact that Jesus was God in the flesh. We've looked at uh, who God is. We've looked at the teaching on the Holy Spirit. We've looked at the fact that God, Jesus was sinless, that he lived a sin-free life. Uh, these are all essential beliefs of the Christian church. And if you're going to call yourself a Christian, then these are things that you believe. Now today we come to what I would consider an essential doctrine of the church, but yet it's not essential for salvation. And that is the idea that God is love. And so we want to take a look at this idea of God is love as one of the essential doctrines of the church. And uh, I wanted to share with you just briefly about a guy by the name of uh, Jim Baker. Does anybody remember that name? 1980s, I believe. Jim Baker was on the scene. He was a televangelist. He was widely known across North America, parts of the world. Uh, he was on Christian network TV. A lot, And uh, he had a wife that had these eyelashes that would uh, wave to you and uh, the big hair. And uh, anyhow, he made his living off of that. Well, uh, Jim Baker fell from grace. Uh, Jim Baker embezzled money from his uh, organization and uh, shamed himself publicly, shamed himself privately with his family um, and ended up in jail as a result of I'm not sure how many years he served, but it was a pretty significant sentence. Uh, served several years in jail as a result of that. Uh, And so in looking at the love of God today, we want to ask the question, you know, does God even, does his love even extend to the Jim Bakers of this world? When we fall from grace ourselves, is God's love still there for us? And so let's see what the scriptures have to say. If you would, let's stand together and read from 1 John chapter 4, we'll be reading verses 7 through 11 and then verses 15 through 16 and here john the apostle of christ is telling us about the essential nature of who god is that god is love so let's read this together it's a number it's a good bit of verses here but let's read together john first john chapter 4 beginning at verse 7 dear friends let us love one another for love comes from god everyone who loves has been born of god and knows god We also ought to love one another. And then verse 15, if anyone acknowledges that Jesus is the son of God, God lives in him and he in God. And so we know and rely on the love God has for us. God is love. Whoever lives in love lives in God and God in him. You may be seated. All right, there's a whole lot of God is love in there. Right? A whole lot of that going on there in those scriptures. And I think this is the single most compelling statement in all of scripture that declares that this is part of the essential nature of who God is. That God is indeed love. Um, In other words, the Bible wants us to understand that love is not something that God does. Love is not something that God shows But rather, love is an intrinsic part of who God is. It's at the very core of his own identity. And so the fact that God shows love, the fact that God uh, does love us, is just an outpouring of his essential nature. You follow that? So I think it's important here at the front end that we define what love is. You say, Gordon, I mean, come on, everybody knows what love is. Well, maybe so. But let's just take a look at how it's defined biblically. There are four Greek words that can be translated into our one English word for love. And we'll pop these up here on the screen for you. The first of those Greek words is the word storge. The word storge refers to a kind of love that a parent has for a child. It is a familial love. It is a family love. This is when a mother loves her children. This is that kind of a love. And interestingly, though, this word storge in the Greek is never used in the New Testament. Never occurs. There's a second kind of love that is uh, identified by the Greek word eros, and this is a romantic kind of love. This is the kind of love that a husband has for his wife, a wife has for her husband. And uh, interestingly, again, this eros love, this word eros, never occurs in the New Testament. Never appears. There's a third kind of Greek, there's a third Greek word that can be translated love, and that's the Greek word philos, and this is where we get our word Philadelphia from, right? The town of you ever been to Philadelphia, it's not that. But anyhow, the brotherly love. So I grew up up around that area. That's not, believe me. Um, but in any case, uh, so philos is a brotherly, a warm kind of love between two human beings. And interestingly, this word philos in the Greek does occur in the New Testament, but it never occurs referencing the kind of love that God has. There's only one Greek word in the entire New Testament that refers to the kind of love that is used to describe the kind of love that God has, and that is the word agape. Agape is a word that is exclusively referring to the kind of love that God has it 's not family love it 's not romantic love it 's not warm brotherly love, rather this is divine love. This is love that has no desire for self gain or self fulfillment it 's rather it's just it 's love that just gives with no anticipation of anything being given back in return its only motive is the welfare of the object of the one to whom it is loving and you remember what jesus said in john chapter 3 and verse 16 he said for god so loved and the word that's there in the greek is agape god so agaped the world that he did what that he gave his best He gave his only son. He gave his son to those that despised him. He gave his son to those that rejected him. He gave his son to those that dismissed him. He gave his son to those that didn't want to have anything to do with him. And yet God, because he is agape, because he is love, he gave his son anyway. Why did God do this? Very simply, because it's at the core of who God is. He gave even when those that he gave Jesus to rejected him. So when the Bible talks about the love of God, this is what we're talking about. This is what it means. It's a divine love, a Savior love. And God is the living embodiment of what agape means um, in action. You say, well, Gordon, I mean, all that sounds great, but what proofs do you have that this is really who God is? I mean, it's really nice for John to say God is love, but how do we know? How can we know for sure that this is at the core, at the essential nature of who God is? Well, One of the greatest proofs that the Bible gives us that God is agape comes in the person of Jesus Christ himself. Over in Romans, I'm I'm sorry, in John chapter 14 and verse 9, Jesus said, He who has seen me has seen the Father. Hey, look at me. Look at how I act. Look at what I do. You can see that that love is at the core of who I am. And if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Well, you have a good idea of who God is and what his essential nature is. Colossians chapter 1 and verse 15, the Bible says, Jesus is the visible image of the invisible God. He's the visible image of the invisible God. And Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 3 says that Jesus is the exact representation of of God's being. In other words, every act that Jesus did, Every deed that he performed, every sympathy he showed for the sick, every pity he showed for the poor, every compassion for the depressed and the oppressed, every clemency he had for the guilty, his help for the hurting, his patience for his friends, and his mercy on his enemies, every bit of this was God's love on display. Do you get it? Jesus is the visible image of the invisible God. When Jesus himself acts in love all over the New Testament, we say, okay, well, then that's reflecting who God the Father is, this Trinity. And nowhere do we see the agape love of God more on display, more powerfully and more compellingly than on the cross, when Jesus was on the cross. Jesus said in John chapter 15, there is no greater love, no greater agape than one person would have than one person would lay down their life for another. 1 John chapter 3 and verse 16 says it like this, by this we know what we know what love that is what agape is, namely that Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. Now, why does the Bible say this? Why does the Bible present to us the cross as the most compelling, the most convincing proof that God is Love of the love of God? Well, i got two reasons for you. First is, first reason why the Bible presents us the cross is because of the spiritual condition that every member of the human race was in before Jesus went to the cross. You see, we were spiritually dead in our sins. We were spiritually darkened in our sins, and yet Christ went to the cross for us. Romans chapter 5 and verse 10 says these words, Every one of us is an enemy of God. That is, before we put our faith in Christ, before we ask him for the forgiveness of our sins, God looks on us as an enemy of himself. And then John chapter 3 and verse 36 says, we have the wrath of God hovering over us, the wrath of God sitting on us over our lives. Friends, this is not a pretty picture of what our relationship to God the Father looks like before we accept Jesus and before we have the forgiveness of our sins, that the wrath of God is literally hovering over us. Um, God's judgment is awaiting its turn uh, to take uh, its, its, role, its place on our life. And that leads me to the second role, reason, though, why, why the cross is a great proof of the agape love of God. That is because only somebody with agape love for you and me would be willing to go to the cross and pay the price that Jesus paid to rescue us. Matthew chapter 20 and verse 28, Jesus said, I did not come to be served, but to serve. She said, that's why I came. I didn't come here and walk around and have everybody pray and glorify me. He said, no, 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 I came to serve. That's why I was here. And he goes on to say, and to give my life as a ransom for many. Jesus said, I'm not going to walk around the earth and talk to you about agape love. I'm going to show you agape love. I'm going to show it to you. Now, let's just stop and ask the question, what kind of an experience was the cross? I mean, if the cross is this great example of the love of God for us, what kind of an experience was it? Well, you know, the Romans didn't invent crucifixion, but the Romans sure did perfect it. I mean, they used it as a deterrent of all deterrents a way to strike fear into the hearts of their enemies, to say, hey, look, you mess with us. Uh, it's not going to go well for you. We're going to put you up on that cross. They would take three nails, two through the hands, one through both feet, drive it through the wood. The prisoner would be lifted up vertically, and you've seen movies like The Passion of the Christ. And you know what a horrific experience the cross was. It was a place of great suffering. And yet, in spite of all that, what did Jesus do on the cross? What did he say? Well, Luke chapter 23 and verse 34 says, Jesus, hanging from the cross, said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. In Jesus' moment of deepest suffering here on earth, he displays the heart of God for all of us to see. And as we look at the heart of God on the cross, what do we see? What do we find there? We don't find anger. We don't find resentment. We don't find hatred and bitterness. We don't find a desire for revenge. You know, Jesus could have prayed from the cross for justice. He could have prayed, Father, condemn them for rejecting me. He could have prayed at the cross for deliverance. He could have said, Father, take me off of this cross. Get me out of this situation. I don't want to be here anymore. I'm done with this. You let them go to hell. That's not what Jesus prayed. He prayed for our pardon. Father, forgive them. Friends, this is agape love at its highest. This reveals God's heart showing mercy to the very people who were crucifying. And Jesus stayed on that cross. And he did it despite the insults. Despite people saying, hey, why don't you come down off that cross? All those sorts of things. He did it because we needed him to. We needed him to. If you want proof that God really loves you, you want proof that God really loves you and me and the rest of the human race, you need to look no further than the cross of Christ. This is why the Bible says in Romans chapter 5 and verse 8, God demonstrated his love for us in this while we were sinners. Christ died for us. That is, while we were embezzling money, while we were using language we shouldn't use, while we were in our sin, while, before we got our lives put back together, Jesus went to the cross. He didn't say, hey, look, y'all go ahead, and you got your lives straight, now I'll go to the cross for you. No, no. He went to the cross while we were sinners, and he died for us. All right, well, that's as far as we want to go with our theological treatment. I know it's only one week I've been gone, but y'all missed this question, right? And so we ask this every week around here. It's the most important question. What difference does all this make to my life? You say, Gordon, I mean, that's really great to know that God is love and that I see God's love displayed on the cross. And I mean, that's great to know, but how does that help me work when I've got people bearing down and I've got kids that are, you know, driving me nuts, and I've got things I need to do. How does this help me in my everyday life? What difference does this make to me? Well, that's a really good question, and I like to ask a question of my own to help us get to an answer. And my question is, how do you think God the Father felt as God the Son hung there on the cross? Think about it for a minute. How do you feel when one of your children has a fever? How do you feel when one of your children gets a boo-boo or is sick or when the when they show up and they've got tears in their eyes because the cruel world hurt them that day? I mean, how do you feel? Well, there's not a parent here who hasn't held their ch- child with a fever or who hasn't been with their kid with a stubbed toe or wrecked their bike or been there when they got injured out on in the playing field. And we try to comfort our children. We try to take the pain away. We try to take the 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 tears away, but we can't. We can't absorb that into ourselves. It's just they hurt, and because they hurt, we hurt. Over in John chapter 1 and verse 18, the Bible reminds us that Jesus was in the bosom of the Father, and it's just a statement that means that the two of them were very tight, and that what Jesus was going through, the Father was himself in a way feeling and experiencing. And so we've hurt with our children through the pain of a miscarriage. We've hurt with our children through a cancer diagnosis. We've hurt with our children when the cruel world hurt them. We've hurt with our children perhaps through the loss of their own spouse. And so as a parent, you take how you felt as you watched your child in pain, as you watched your child suffer, and you multiply that by a million times, and you begin to understand how the father was feeling as the son was hanging there on the cross. Let me show you something over in Isaiah chapter 53 and verse seven. This is where God is speaking to Isaiah and revealing to him some of what's going to happen to Jesus when he comes to the earth, what's going to happen to the Messiah. And so the scriptures say he that is the Messiah, the Lord Jesus, was oppressed and afflicted, and yet he did not open his mouth. That is, he didn't give a public defense of himself, and that's exactly what Jesus did before Pontius Pilate. And God the Father, knowing all this is going to happen to God the Son, he says he was like a lamb led to slaughter. Middle of verse 8. He was cut off from the land of the living for the transgression of my people, to whom the stroke was really due. In other words, we deserved what Jesus experienced on the cross. God the Father knew that this was going to happen to the Messiah, to the Son, and yet he sent him anyway. Verse 9. He was assigned to a grave with the wicked even though he had done no violence nor was any deceit found in him. You know, again, all this is recounting the agony and the suffering that will happen one day to the Messiah as these words are spoken 700 plus years before. Now look at verse 10. It says, and yet, the Bible says, it was the Lord's will to crush jesus it was the lord's will to crush the messiah and it was the lord's will to cause him to suffer you say gordon that doesn't make any sense why would god the father be pleased declare it his will to see god the son suffer like this why would he do that Well, I'll tell you why. The answer is very simple. Because God loves us. Because God loves us. That's why. God knew that only by sending his son Jesus on the cross could salvation and deliverance for you and I in our sinful state take place. God knew that only by crushing Jesus on the cross could God pardon our sins and rescue us from an eternity apart from him. Remember, God is holy. God cannot accept contaminated us into his holy presence. He would pluck us out of eternity if we ever showed up there without the blood covering of Christ over our lives. And so God sent his son in order to adopt us as his children. He sent his son and was pleased, it was his will, to crush Jesus on the cross. Somebody had to pay for your sins, and God was willing to send his son to do that. Friends, God loves us so much that there was no price that God was not willing to pay to rescue you and me. You know, there's a great evangelist from the 19th century. His name was Dwight L. Moody, or some called him D.L. Moody. Moody was a young man when he moved to Chicago and began pastoring a church there. He went out of town one Sunday, maybe he was going to go run, I don't know. But in any case, he went out of town one Sunday, had a visiting preacher, a guy by the name of Henry Morehouse, to come and preach as the substitute that Sunday. And so he went away, did whatever he was doing, and came back, and he asked his wife, he said, how did Morehouse do? She said, oh, Morehouse was great, he was fantastic. She said, I liked him very much, but he preaches very different than you do. He said, well, how so? She said, well, he tells the worst of sinners that God loves them. And Moody said, well, that's not true. That's not right. And so he said, "Uh, I need to go investigate this. And so the next Sunday, Morehouse was preaching somewhere else in Chicago, and I guess it was a later service in the day, but anyhow, Moody made his way over there to hear Morehouse preach. And so here's Moody's um, diary, if you would, his journal of his experience listening to Morehouse preach. He says, and I quote, Morehouse turned to John 3.16 and preached the most extraordinary sermon from that verse. He went through the whole Bible, from Genesis to Revelation, proving that in all ages, by the way, their sermons were a lot longer back then, proving that in all ages, God loved the world. Moody said, up until that time, I never knew that God loved us that much. He said, this old heart of mine began to thaw out, I couldn't hold back the tears. He said, Morehouse beat that truth down into my heart, and I have never doubted that God loves me since. He he goes on to say, I used to think that God was standing behind the sinner ready to hack us down with a double-edged sword. He said, now I realize that God is standing behind the sinner with his arms open wide, saying, I love you. You're my child. Look at what I've done for you. Come to me. You know, for many of us, we've stopped running from our father and his arms wide open. For many of us, we've surrendered our life to him. I did that when I was eight years old. I remember kneeling down at my bedside one night with my dad. I was on my way home from church. I realized that day that I had a sin problem that only God could fix. And I knew that I was heading for an eternity in a place that nobody wanted to go. And I remember kneeling down at my bedside at eight years of age. And I prayed to receive the Lord Jesus into my heart. I turned my life over to the Lord. I had my sin problem fixed. I took what Jesus did on the cross. I appropriated it to my own life. And my eternity, it's the best decision I've ever made. You know, some of us, though, are still running. Some of us are still resisting. Some of us are still fighting. Friends, God is not standing behind you ready to hack you down. God is standing behind you with his arms open wide. All you need to do is do a 180 and receive the love that God has for you. receive the free gift of Jesus and his shed blood on the cross. You know, I'm here to tell you on behalf of the God that I serve, that if you are running, you are running away from love. The most amazing love that you will ever experience. For God so loved the world, that is God so agape the world, that he, that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him would not perish, but would have everlasting life. Now, Jesus put that word, whoever, in there. I didn't put it in there. And what that means is you don't have to clean yourself up. You don't have to straighten yourself up. You don't have to get your act together. All you need to do is accept the love that God has for you by asking Jesus to forgive you of your sins. And so I'm here today to say that if you've been running from God, I'm here to beg you. That if you've been running from God, stop today and say, Lord, I'm done running from you. I'm going to have my moment, my decision here, Lord, to turn around and be received by you. I mentioned Jim Baker earlier. Jim Baker wrote an autobiography following in the aftermath of everything that happened to him and talks about in his autobiography uh, the story of what happened after he had been sent to prison and how God had worked through his life. He talks about one particular incident one day, and I'll share some of this with you. He says, one day while I was wearing my overalls and cleaning the latrines in the prison, a guard came to me and he said, Jim, there's someone here to see you. And Jim said, I don't want to see anybody. He said, no, no, I think you want to see this person. Jim said, but I'm filthy. I'm here cleaning the latrines. I'm covered in water on my coveralls, and I'm smelly. I'm hot. And the guard said, well, I understand. Why don't you go on back and and get cleaned up a little bit? You can change. Jim said, no, this is where I'm at. This is who I am. So the guard led him to the waiting room where this person was, And with all the splashes of water on his coveralls and smelling as he did, he looked at himself, embarrassed at what he looked like, put the broom and the mop to the side, and walked over to the waiting room. And in his own words, he said, I walked to the waiting room, and I was stunned when I saw Billy Graham standing there. He said, Billy took three steps towards me. He wrapped his arms around me. He embraced me. Jim Baker said, I wept like a little child, realizing that my name symbolized all that was corrupt in the world, and Billy's name symbolized all that was pure, and I was being held in the embrace of a man who was pure. Friends, that's what the cross is. That's who God is. He loves you. He loves you. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for talking to us from your word today. We're thankful for the fresh reminder of your essential nature. That you embrace us while we're sinners and all of our filth. And all of our dirtiness. And Lord, you just wrap your arms around us. Lord, perhaps there are some here today that have been running from you, fighting it, resisting you. I pray, Holy Spirit, that we would have a very clear vision of the one that we're resisting. And Lord, for those of us that have made that decision to accept you as our Lord and Savior, in these quiet moments of communion, we're reminded of what you did for us. May that reality, just as it did for Moody, so fill our hearts that we'll never be the same. Speak to us, we pray, in these quiet moments. In Christ's name.